Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. I'd like to welcome our live audience here in San Francisco and our radio and online audiences. It's my great pleasure to introduce Steve Luxburg tonight uh, to speak about his book, Separate, which is about the history of, of uh, post-Civil War slavery and what led up to it and the Plessy versus Ferguson decision. Um, it's a very interesting process. I mean, we had slavery, and then we had uh, segregation after the war and Reconstruction, then we went for integration, and then we had mass incarceration. You know? And this is, it's, it's, we just keep moving back and forth and back and forth, trying to solve a problem and getting someplace. Yes, we're getting someplace, but we're getting there way too slowly. And sort of the underlying thing for me is, this is sort of like you never forgive those you've sinned against. You sinned against them, and then you never forgive them. You always keep them reminding you or keep them to the side. So anyway, uh, we've made a lot of progress, and that's very, very important. But it's also very interesting, and I... I uh, loved uh, Steve's uh, part of his book where he talked about New Orleans society in the 30s, 40s, and 50s leading up to civil society. Um, very, very complex and very interesting. So thanks a lot for coming, Steve. My son is a uh, playwright, and, I, and he's always been in the theater, and I feel like this is the first time that I'm on Broadway. <laughs> I, I've not worn these before. Uh, so, I'll give you a little bit of introduction to myself, since I'm sure all of you don't know me. Uh, I'm a Washington Post associate editor. I've been on leave writing books. Uh, I started my career in Baltimore, where I live. I'm a Baltimore Sun reporter. And I have to thank our president for giving me a handle on how to introduce myself, because I come from the rat-infested, rodent-infested <laughs> city of Baltimore. Um, One of my uh, other uh, resume items is that I have a credit on the show The Wire. How many of you have ever seen The Wire? Okay. HBO, 10 years ago now, seems like just yesterday. Crime, corruption, there's a theme here about Baltimore. Crime, corruption, courts in Baltimore. And if you remember season five, it's all about the news media. Uh, and I'm in a, a short scene in the Baltimore Sun newsroom where we're being given the bad news about how we have to do more with less. We're going to be closing bureaus. We're going to downsize. So I thought you'd like to have me reenact my, my uh, bit on the wire. Would you like to see that? <laughs> you know, nobody cares about my journalism once I mention the wire. <laughs> so here it is. We're, we're listening to the editor, and here's my star turn. You know, I was directed in that, um, but, but the, the, the dirty little secret is I began to direct the director because I told her that in the first take, we were all very quiet because we were all extras. We didn't know what to do, right? And I told her it would never be quiet in a newsroom. If the editor is giving you bad news like that, we would be smart allocating our way throughout the talk. So she came out at the next take and said, talk to yourselves among the... So I say I directed The Wire. <laughs> so the other day, I, I have lots of relatives in uh, Oakland and San Francisco. S some of them are in this room. 
Uh, you can meet them afterwards. They're going to hold a little groupie session for me. Uh, and one of them, Fritz over here, raise your hand, Fritz, a retired teacher, one of the most fabulous teachers in Oakland. And he and I were talking about history, and I pulled off of his shelf a book that is, he said was used as the textbook in the AP history course, uh, edited by the, under the supervision of Alan Brinkley. Uh, and I, I went to the index and I looked to see the references to Plessy, of which there were only two, two pages, two sentences. One was, there's the Plessy ruling in 1896 and it was a bad ruling. And the other was, the Supreme Court overturned the bad ruling in 1954 in Brown versus Board of Education, effectively overturned it. That was it. That's what AP history taught you about the Plessy case. So is it any wonder that this is the most uh, unknown, infamous case in our history? Most people just don't know anything about it. How many of you have studied Plessy in law school? Okay. What you learned in law school is mostly from the briefs and from the Supreme Court's rulings, the majority ruling and the dissent, it tells you nothing about the backstory of the case. In fact, it misleads you because it doesn't give you some of the essential reasons why the case came to be the way it was. So when I got interested in, in doing this book, so you're going to ask me, like, why did you get interested in doing this book? Um, I'm going to talk about that a little bit before we dive into the case. So I'm not a constitutional scholar. I'm not uh, a legal historian. On the other hand, somebody who encouraged me to write this book is here in the front row, Professor Jim Campbell from Stanford. So I wrote to Jim and I said, you know, this story has been told from a legal and a constitutional perspective, but I want to talk about the people who got caught up in the case. Uh, and I didn't hear from you for two weeks. And I got nervous, but I shouldn't known better because Jim is a good, a good historian, a good reporter. He was passing the email around, he said, at the end of the two weeks, asking other historians whether my idea was any good. And he sent back an email saying, I think you're on to something, and I, I, you, if, you wanna, if you're going to buy the book, of course you are. Uh, he's in the acknowledgments, and I tell this, this little story. And he's a little embarrassed. He thinks that I overdo this. But in fact, a, a writer needs this kind of encouragement. It needs a big boost. And this was a big deal to me when you, when you sent that email. Um, so... I graduated from college in 19, I'm hesitant to say this, 1974, and I looked at my credentials and I realized I had none, so I went into the one field where you need no credentials, which is journalism. Uh, <laughs> but in 40 years of being a journalist, I feel like after editing many, many stories or writing stories that had a race as a component, that I really didn't understand what I regard to be our national conversation. Uh, we're either talking about race or we're avoiding talking about race, but it's always lurking in the background. Uh, racial justice in America never comes swiftly or easily. Uh, George, you referred to this in your, uh, you know, I want that, to, where, where's that uh, gavel? <laughs> I feel like with a Supreme Court story, it just deserves to be up here. Uh, racial justice never comes swiftly easy because what you, what you learn about history is, is that we think of it as a narrative or as a chronology, but it's never a straight line. It's sometimes two steps forward and one step back, or it's one step forward and two steps back. And that's why this, your introduction is a good one, George, because we've gone from, you know, our, our majority leader in, in the Senate would have us believe that if we're going to talk about reparations, we should stop the conversation at slavery. What racial history is he reading? 
Doesn't he know anything about what happened in the South after that? Doesn't he know about people being pressed into convict labor in the latter half of the, of the 19th century or Jim Crow laws of the 20th century or the lack of opportunities in education and all kinds of areas in the late 20th century? There is no ev- equal starting line yet. And that's the rep- repercussions of the Plessy decision. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about the elephant in the room, or I should say perhaps the white elephant in the room, which is how is a white guy like me doing this story? Why am I interested in it? Well, uh, there was a good reason why there was Black History Month when it was founded, but today I would like to say that I don't think there's black history or white history. This is our history, and unless I write about it, and unless people of color have me uh, as part of the conversation. I don't see how we're going to make progress. I don't see how racial conversations... Thank you. So I want to own this story, and this is my small contribution to that, to that history. Uh, now, when I was a young guy, and I was looking at, at writing books, perhaps, which took me a long time before I ever wrote one, I read a book called Gideon's Trumpet by the New York Times reporter Anthony Lewis. How many people here know that story? So Gideon's trumpet is about the Supreme Court case, Gideon versus Wainwright. We know it today as the case that gave people who have no means to hire a lawyer in a criminal case, you get to have a lawyer. Well, Lewis's account was so compelling to me uh, that I thought maybe someday I'd get to write a book about the Supreme Court because I see it as a marvelous way to look at the history of America. Uh, Often it's one case that opens the door to just so many wider issues as, as Plessy does. Uh, but, of course, Mr. Lewis wrote his book in about 300 pages. I took 500, so not only did he beat me by 40 years, but he also did a better job. Uh, the, the interesting thing about the, the, the Plessy case is that you want to begin in the South. As George mentioned, New Orleans. This is a case that comes out of New Orleans. I, I went to the San Antonio Book Festival and I learned a very important rule about talking about your books, which is that in Texas, talk about Texas. <laughs> it's hard to talk about California in this story because it doesn't really have much of a role. But I, I'm told that if you talk about New Orleans in California, you get a lot of, lot of interest. <laughs> Because it's, it's a unique city. It's one of the most unique cities in the country. Can you say that, most unique? No. My professors would say that you can't say most unique. It's a unique city in the country. And it's unique in the 19th century, and it's still unique today. It's because of its French and Spanish roots. But when the Americans took over in 1803, the provincial governor who showed up, a guy named William Claiborne, how many of you have been to New Orleans? So you know Claiborne Avenue. This is, this is why it's named that. So Claiborne shows up, and he had had, you know, he had enslaved people in Virginia. He shows up in, in New Orleans, and he realizes that there are 6,000 free people of color. 6,000 in a town of about, I think it's about 20,000 in 1803. And he's flabbergasted. He doesn't know what to do about it. Because they not only are they free... There is an ens- a huge enslaved population and a huge slave market in New Orleans, but they have weapons. They have a militia, which they've been allowed to keep by the French and the Spanish. And so he writes to Washington. Now, this is the 19th century, so you know, he doesn't Instagram. He doesn't. He writes a letter. It takes a month, a month, for the letter to get to Washington. And it takes a month for a reply. 
And what do you think Jefferson, the president, and Madison, the secretary of state, told him when he said, what would you like me to do about these free people of color? He said what all good presidents said. He said, you're on your own, buddy. Uh, We can't help you from this distance. And so Claiborne kind of muddles through and allows them to exist as a militia, two militias actually, because he doesn't want trouble. He feels like he's already surrounded by spies and all this intrigue, and he just doesn't want to deal with it. So in 1814, when Andrew Jackson shows up for the Battle of New Orleans, which is going to define New Orleans for much of the 19th century, they're going to have parades every year on January 8th. It's a big deal. But he needs manpower. And so he puts out the call to the free people of color to come bring their weapons so that they can join in the Battle of New Orleans. And he promises them certain rights. And thus begins a trail, a paper record of a promise of rights to this sandwiched layer of mixed race, free people of color who are between the white leadership and between the enslaved population and who have certain rights. They can own property, including slaves, which some of them do. They have other rights. They cannot hold office, though. They cannot vote. And they're always pressing for their rights. So by 1890 when the Plessy case kind of begins, uh, kind of because that's when the law is passed, and I'll explain that in a second, the, people, the free people of color and their descendants are a, a pretty unhappy lot, and they're not going to take it anymore. And so when the Louisiana legislature passes a separate railroad car act, in the preamble it says it's for the comfort of its passengers to separate white and colored passengers into separate cars, Um, they lobby against it. They go to Baton Rouge, they make a stink about it, they fail, they petition the governor by telegram, that fails, the law goes into effect, and they announce in the New Orleans Crusader, this mixed-race, largely French-speaking group, that they are going to bring a case, a test case, they use that phrase, a test case, to the federal courts to try to bring this law down. Now, uh, that's the story of the South, sort of. But this story really begins in the North. It begins in the North because that's where the birthplace of separation really is. Before the Civil War, at the dawn of the railroad age, when the first passenger railroads opened for business in Massachusetts, there are eight of them by 1840. They're not going very far. Boston to Salem, Boston to New Bedford. How many people have ever been in those areas? You know these are short distances. But um, it's, a, it's a great boon to one group of people, the abolitionists, who are traveling to their night meetings usually on horseback and stagecoach, and they're thrilled to be inside, even in a smelly uh, railroad car, smelly because the fumes are coming back from the uh, steam and and all that. They're they're thrilled. So they're riding the trains. Uh, But three out of these eight railroads, three, decide to separate their passengers. But only three. Five do not. So there's no agreement here on how to handle the very large population of people of color in Massachusetts. That's sarcasm. (laughs) According to the 1840 census, you know how many free people of color there were in Massachusetts? Less than 1%. They were not on the railroads. This is not a problem waiting to be solved, even if you had white customers who demanded that they sit in separate cars. So the abolitionists, they see an issue. They know how to seize an issue. Uh, they've been doing it for 10 years now by, the, by 1840. And they confront the conductor constantly in the form of a white abolitionist whose name changes 
and a black abolitionist whose name is Frederick Douglass, who will later become, of course, the most famous black man in America. Now, Douglass at this point is a young guy. He's in his 20s, he's broad-shouldered, and he writes in his memoir several times, because he writes several memoirs and changes his stories a little bit each time, that when the conductor and his crew come to confront him, he resists. He resists by grabbing onto the seat, holding so hard that six men are required to uh, oust him, and he brings the seat up off of its, <laughs> off of its bolts. Uh, that's how much he was uh, resisting. So resistance is a part of the narrative of Separate. This is a story about the people like Douglas who resist, they lead right to Plessy, and the people who make the decision, the lawyers, the justices. You can't have one without the other. There are no lawsuits, there are no arrests, there are no court scenes if you don't have people bringing these cases. So it's a double narrative, and the people who are the resistors uh, are standing on each other's shoulders. In 1840, 1841, there's another black abolitionist who's visiting from New York. His name is David Ruggles. Anybody know the name David Ruggles? George does. David Ruggles was not broad shoulders. He was 33 years old, he was slightly built, and he was going blind from early cataracts. So when he's ousted from the train going from Boston to New Bedford, he does not resist. He, he exits, they throw him off the train, he is bruised and battered, but he does something that Douglas never did, which is that he goes into the New Bedford police court and he takes out a warrant against the conductor and the railroad. And this is the first case that I could find of somebody suing or alleging an assault over public transportation. And it starts another chain of cases that go through, I'm going to give you some names, it goes through... William Howard Day in Michigan on a steamboat in 1855 who is, who is not allowed to buy a cabin, an indoor cabin, and has to endure the outdoor weather. He refuses, leaves the steamboat, takes his case to the Michigan Supreme Court, which he loses. It, it includes William Nichols in New Orleans on the streetcars in 1867. In 1867, in order to ride a streetcar, if you were a person of color, you had to ride the star car, had a black star, those are the only cars open to you. And if the whites were lined up and there, were more, and there, and there weren't enough streetcars going by, the whites would take over the black star cars and you got to sit nowhere. It includes Ida B. Wells. People know that name, Ida B. Wells, the famous, <coughs> the famous journalist. Uh, but when she was 20 years old, she wasn't yet famous. She was on Memphis railroad trains going to her. She was a teacher. She refused to sit in the car reserved for people of color. And she, she goes into court twice, wins at the lower court level, loses at the Tennessee Supreme Court. And then we get to Plessy. So I want to tell you a little bit about this case, but I don't think you'll like it all that much if I just give you a lot of facts. So I have developed a little Alex Trebek imitation. <laughs> We're going to play Jeopardy. We're going to do this cooperatively. You're going you're gonna to shout out answers. You're gonna, it's okay to be wrong. I didn't know anything about this case before I started researching it. So here we play Plessy for 100. You know, I could put up a PowerPoint and show you the... But if I did that, I'm worried about copyright infringement, so I'm not going to do that. So listen closely. I have a new respect for the Jeopardy writers because the answers are not that easy to, to write. The word this is the most important word in the Jeopardy vocabulary. 
So Plessy for 100. This Louisiana law was violated when Homer Plessy sat in the car reserved for white passengers. This Louisiana law. Separate but equal. That, that law I was describing before, the Separate Car Act. So it's passed by, in 1890 by the House and the Senate, signed by the governor. So Plessy for 200. The lawyers for Plessy asked for his help because of this notable aspect of his identity. This notable. Light-skinned. Light See, the history teacher knows. So Plessy was nearly white. He was a volunteer. The arrest was arranged. Why was it arranged? Because if you're trying to bring a legal case, you do not want the wrong conditions for making your legal argument. You want the best conditions. And the best conditions in this case included making sure that Plessy was arrested under the Separate Car Act. If he was arrested for disorderly conduct, not any good. You got to be arrested under Section 2 that said that it was wrong for somebody to travel in the wrong car depending on your race. Now, I want you to think about this. You've heard the word decriminalization as it applies to, let's say, marijuana, the criminalization of certain kinds of behavior. The, the policies of the Massachusetts railroads, and I want to say that those policies ended by 1843 under pressure from the public and the abolitionists. Uh, they went to the legislature in Massachusetts and they, they had a petition, which I went to the Massachusetts State, Ar State Archives and asked them to bring out. They brought out a... Uh, a folder that was smaller than this book, and there was a big, fat envelope. And I, and I said, could you please extract that and fold it out? Because I don't think I can fold it back up the way it's supposed to be. And anybody here who's worked in archives know that it's a cardinal sin ever to change the way that the archives hold, hold their possessions. And so they unfolded it, and they unfolded it, and they unfolded it, and it was 14 feet long. <laughs> a thousand signatures, including Frederick Douglass's and William Lloyd Garrison's. Um, and in that day, petitions really mattered. They paid attention to this. And so there was a battle in the legislature. It didn't end with a law. Had it ended with a law, had the Massachusetts legislature been willing to tell a corporation what to do, that was part of the debate. Should we be able to do that? Maybe we would have a different situation here with Citizens United. Maybe not. <laughs> Historians don't like counterfactuals. That's, I just presented you with one, an alternative universe. But <laughs> there it is. Uh, but by, but in, in, in Plessy's time, this had become a law. Louisiana was not the first state to enact such a law. There had been laws enacted in Mississippi and Texas and Florida. The difference between those laws and the Louisiana law was that the Louisiana law criminalized passenger behavior. You could not be charged in Mississippi with riding in the wrong car. The railroad could be charged with not separating the passengers, and that too had gone to the Supreme Court in 1890, and the Supreme Court had upheld the Mississippi law. But the Louisiana law gave rise to different conditions, so that's why the Plessy team was able to bring what they felt was a new argument to a Supreme Court that had already decided several civil rights cases in the wrong direction. They'd already decided that the 14th Amendment should be narrowed, not applied broadly. So, let's go back to being Alex Trebek. At least, I'm going to go back. Plessy for 300. The people behind the Plessy case took this unusual step to give themselves the best conditions to get to the Supreme Court. So, I, we didn't really finish with light skin, did we? So, they wanted a light-skinned uh, person arrested because they wanted to argue 
that if you were required to separate passengers by color, how the heck in New Orleans, which has every color under the spectrum, are you going to be able to tell the race of somebody? And how are you going to do it without testimony or evidence? How could a conductor of all people walking down a railroad car in the middle of a train ride decide to be pro- judge, prosecutor, and jury and separate the passengers? So they wanted to, that was the conditions that they wanted. But in this case, Plessy for 300, what they did was they wanted to make sure that Plessy was not manhandled because he was a volunteer. They wanted to make sure that they could get him arrested under the right act. So they had a private detective and they had the railroad's consent. The railroad was in on the arrest. Now, if you've ever read the Plessy ruling and the Plessy briefs, you will find no mention of this. So that backstory is just not there, which is why I think it's not a very good way to learn about the history of something. The railroad, why would the railroad be in on it? What would be the usual reason why any corporation is interested in something? Money. Money. They didn't want to run a separate car, but they didn't have to. You know, there weren't very many black passengers. You could have a car with five passengers. You'd have a white car with too many passengers. They just wanted to have one car, if they could do that. They wanted a second car. They didn't want to have to have it be reserved only for certain passengers. They did solve this problem in another way on many railroads. What they did was they made the car for colored passengers into a half car with a petition. And the first part of the car would be a smoking car, which gives rise to the question of, are they equal? The white car had nobody smoking. The car for people of color had smoking. That would be different conditions. Now, the Plessy lawyers didn't go after the equal part of the equation. Why not? Because they didn't want to have the uh, Supreme Court say, as long as they're equal, you should make them equal, it would be okay. They wanted to defeat the separate part of it. So they didn't want to argue about whether the cars were manufactured the same or whether they had the same upholstery or whether they had the same conditions. They wanted to defeat separate, which is how they went after the case. So, Plessy for 400. Seven justices upheld the Louisiana law, and six, remember I told you the word this is important, shared this important bond. Six of the justices upheld the law. Northerners. Northerners, not Southerners, Northerners. Since the, the Civil War, there had been very few Southern justices appointed. In fact, the dissenter in Plessy, a guy named John Marshall Harlan of Kentucky, is the first Southerner appointed to the Supreme Court since the end of the Civil War. Now, Republicans were the party of anti-slavery at this time. It was founded in 1854 in either Michigan or Wisconsin, depending on who you ask. But they were the party of anti-slavery. And it's amazing, if you think about the differences in the 19th century between 20th and 21st, the Republicans managed to get a president elected after six years of being a political party. It's second election. Now, Lincoln was elected... How many, how, many, uh, how many southern ballots was Lincoln on? None. None. So we think of uh, this division we have now, and we talk about our president, not my president. Well, you can see southerners saying, not my president. I didn't even vote for, I didn't have a chance to vote for him, and I would have voted against him anyway. So there, there you have the conditions at the end of the Civil War, and it's followed by what some good historians have called a revolution in the Constitution with the enactment of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. I'm sure all of you can tell me what those amendments say, but I'm going to help you out. 
So the 13th is the one that abolishes slavery and says that there should be no badge of servitude, except in case of con- a conviction, which is why you give rise to the thin disguise that goes around convict labor of people being charged with a, a small crime, can't pay the fine, and they get pressed into to convict labor after the Civil War. Fourteenth Amendment has three important things. It awards citizenship to people of color, which was denied to them under Dred Scott. It provides for equal protection under the law, and it says that there must be due process. Those are the three important parts of that. And the fifteenth is the is the amendment that provides voting rights for black men, not black women. In fact, no women until 1920 with the passage of the Nineteenth Amendment. So those three amendments, as you can see are a kind of revolution because they introduce civil rights fully into the American conversation. And uh, in the original Constitution, which does not mention the word slavery, but has the, the famous three-fifths clause, three-fifths of a person in order to give the South more voting uh, uh, authority, more you know, heft, uh, now we have that rejected, we have Dred Scott rejected, and we have these new civil rights amendments. And that gives rise to an entirely new area of the law. There were really very few Supreme Court cases that dealt with anything that could be called civil rights before the Civil War, and now we have a new area of law, but it's, it's slow. There are some cases in the 1870s and the 1880s, but by 1890, the court has already mapped out its view of these civil rights amendments, and it's narrowed its view of the 14th Amendment. It, it, it's all hung up on the idea that states can make no law abridging the rights of its citizens, but it doesn't deal with corporations. It doesn't deal with individuals. Discrimination is not outlawed. Just states making such laws that would outlaw such, such uh, would outlaw discrimination. So, complicated, I know. Plessy for 500. Um, when the Plessy ruling was announced, the only dissenter predicted that it would become as infamous as this Supreme Court case, this earlier Supreme Court case. Dred Scott. So Dred Scott is 1857. It says that blacks can never be citizens of the United States, no matter where they were born. This, uh, the 14th Amendment takes care of that, rejects that view. So it's not done by the Supreme Court itself. Uh, But John Marshall Harlan wrote in his dissent that this case would become as infamous as Dred Scott. And he's proved correct. I mean, today we look at uh, at Plessy and we, we, we lump it in with those two cases as being perhaps the worst of the Supreme Court. But it wasn't regarded that way in 1896 when it was announced. Why not? Because in the news media is my brethren, is uh, when something is expected, there's kind of a ho-hum attitude. Everybody thought the Supreme Court was going to rule the way that it did. In fact, my newspaper, the Washington Post, it sent a reporter to the Supreme Court on the day of the oral arguments in Plessy in April of 1896. And the, the lawyer for Plessy was a guy named Albion Terget. How many people know that name? Albion Terget is unknown today, but he was the most famous white advocate for civil rights in the country in the 1890s. He was a best-selling novelist. He had written these novels about Reconstruction based upon his, his time in North Carolina. He had served in the Union Army, gone down to North Carolina to cement the revolution that he felt had come at the end of the Civil War. And by 1880, he had left, and when he he left, a North Carolina newspaper said he was the most hated man in North Carolina. And in this case, that was not fake news. (laughs) 
Turgeot uh, had a, a, a number of different arguments he wanted to make about this case, but on the day of the oral argument, the Washington Post wrote, uh, he had been the, the um, author of his, his first best-selling novel was called A Fool's Errand by One of the Fools. He was talking about his errand to go down to North Carolina and cement that revolution. And the Washington Post wrote, Albion Terget, the best-selling novelist is in town. Celebrity news was big back then, too. The best-selling novelist is in town on another fool's errand. Everybody knows how this case is going to turn out. And so when it, when it did go the way that the white newspapers expected, some newspapers didn't put it on the front page at all. Others put it in the third paragraph. There were some... Fortunately, Post did put it as the lead and put a headline on it. The black press, on the other hand, had an entirely different view. The black press, the Richmond Planet said, evil days are truly upon us. Evil days are truly upon us. So there's a, there's a huge divide in the way that people look at, uh, in this time, look at this kind of case. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I want to read to you just one paragraph from Frederick Douglass. Speaking to the 1876 presidential convention, the the Republican convention, because I want you to hear how a black man living in 1876 saw the world. So listen to this and be prepared for Douglas's sarcasm. He had never addressed a presidential convention before this point. He said, you say you have emancipated us and you have. And I thank you for that. That's his sarcasm. You say you have enfranchised us. You have, and I thank you for that. But what is your uh, enfranchisement? What is your emancipation? What does it all amount to if the black man, having been made free by the letter of your law, is unable to exercise that freedom after having been freed from the slaveholder's lash and is subjected to the slaveholder's shotgun? You have turned us loose to the sky, to the storm, to the whirlwind, all the things that happened at the Civil War. And worst of all, you have turned us loose to the wrath of our infuriated masters. The question now is, do you mean to make good to us on the promises in your Constitution? Your law, my words, your law, your Constitution, words carefully chosen to reflect the sting of separation. So he saw the world as one in which he had no uh, involvement in writing these amendments. He had no involvement in voting for people until 1870. So these were not his promises. These were your promises. And that's the way someone in 1876 would have seen it, I think. The other thing to remember is that most of this takes place against a backdrop of violence and intimidation. So the resistors that I mentioned... You know, they're not just sauntering onto railroad trains and having a good time. They risk life and limb in doing this. Uh, And so it's remarkable that in in the face of all that, there were so many people who were interested in being brave. Uh, the, The end of the story is that when the Supreme Court rules, 
they do not even accept any of the 13th and 14th Amendment arguments. They reject those. Uh, And one of the reasons why Justice Henry Billings Brown, who's a major character in Separate, gets grief for his his ruling is, is that in the key passage, he says, in the nature of things, the 14th Amendment can't possibly mean that people should be riding together. Well, in the nature of things is not a legal phrase, and so he gets hammered by people who are uh, interested in, in why he would be using that kind of language. Um, the, uh, so what basis do they decide the case? Well, they decided essentially on the basis of the Tenth Amendment. They say that Louisiana has, under its police powers, to keep law and order, to promote peace and harmony, have, have the right to enact such legislation. That's entirely the opposite of what I think we would think the 14th Amendment might mean, but that's the basis on which they decided it. Uh, The dissenter in the case, John Marshall Harlan, uh, his view was, absolutely do I agree with the use of the 14th Amendment. I even agree with the use of the 13th Amendment. What is being sent to a separate railroad car mean other than having been marked a badge of servitude? I, I think that anybody who thinks otherwise is just falling for the thin disguise that these equal but separate laws have foisted on the American public. So that's, that was a famous phrase for him, a thin disguise. Uh, Harlan is often quoted for his dissent because he says in his dissent that the Constitution is colorblind. Um, it's interesting to me that that phrase is picked up from Albion Turgé's brief in Toto. It's not Harlan's original phrase. Uh, I want to end, and when when we have the question and answer, I don't really want you to feel obligated to ask me a question. What I'd really like to do is have a conversation. So think about how you deal with race in your life, how you talk to your kids about race, how, if you're teaching school, how does race figure into the conversations in your classroom? That can be part of the discussion as well. So I want to close by reading you two things. One is the end of my prologue, because... Heck, you know, I like my writing. Um, Here's what I wrote at the end, setting you up for this amazing story. All Supreme Court cases have their own geography. Remarkable characters populate the landscape of this one. Turgeon of Ohio, Brown of New England, Harlan of Kentucky, Louis Martinet of Louisiana. He was the head of the committee that brought the case. On separate paths to a shared destination, connected by time, culture, happenstance, and the unresolved struggle between an exhausted North and a bitter South. Their actions and attitudes, their flaws and foibles, who they were, where they lived, what they said, why they said it, how their views evolved over a half century of strife and conflict, serve as powerful reminders that history is made and not ordained. And I think it's appropriate to end with somebody else's words, in this case, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King's words. I I violated the rule for all narrative writers by going outside of the framework of my story deep into the 20th century to pull out this quote. But it's so apt that I feel like it, it needs to be there and it needs to be read aloud. Men hate each other because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they can't communicate with each other. They can't communicate with each other because they are separated from each other. So with that, I will encourage questions. Just a second. 
How much do you think the issue of reparations will play in this coming election? Start with the easy questions. <laughs> I don't think it'll play very heavily, actually. Um, because who's carrying that conversation? You can see in the debates, I'm, not, I'm, I'm now being the journalist analyzing something, you can see in the debates that the things that seem to carry the conversation are health care, somewhat foreign policy, somewhat the fitness of the person who's in office, if it's the Democratic debates. Um, certainly, I don't think that the Republican nominee is going to be bringing up that issue. So I don't think it'll be having a lot of weight in the presidential election. There, there is conversation in Congress, but of course they're consumed with things like impeachment. So I'm not sure that's a conversation that's going very far there either. Great. And I'd like to, uh, before I go to more questions, I'd like to remind our radio and online audiences that they're listening to Stephen Luxembourg, the author of Separate, uh, uh, The History of the Plessy versus Ferguson Case in the 19th Century. So next question. I have, I have something. For I have a question about the Tilden versus Hayes election. Usually that's seen as a Republican theft um, uh, in a compromise with the three state legislatures from the South to have their electoral votes go the wrong way in order to put an end to Reconstruction. But you gave a lot more subtlety and nuance than that in your description because, after all, the Democrats, at least the Southern Democrats, probably wanted to accomplish the same thing. So maybe if you could say a little bit it's about It's a complicated... Uh, yeah. I'm not an expert on it, but I think what was fascinating to me is the way in which it was settled, which doesn't really get a lot of ink, is that a commission was set up. And the commission, I think we could argue, was unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. It had five Republicans, five Democrats, and five Supreme Court justices. Separation of powers, anybody? <laughs> but, of course... Democracies are built on consensus and agreement. So if we all agree it's unconstitutional, but we're going ahead with that anyway, that's one way to settle it. The thing I think it, I found surprising, given what I knew about Mr. Hayes, so Rutherford B. Hayes is sort of criticized for being a kind of sellout, right? He, he, he ends Reconstruction. He brings the troops out of the South. Uh, he appoints a Southerner to the Supreme Court. And, and I think that um, you know, it was supposed to be an ideal a deal with the, with the Democrats. But if you look at, at, at Hayes' um, campaign, he's not campaigning in the normal sense. Nobody campaigned the way they do now. You sent proxies out to campaign. But a lot of his rhetoric was, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to bring the, the troops home. Uh, I'm going to end the occupation. I'm going to uh, try to unify the country. And in his diary, he, he he's divorces himself from this commission and says... There's really no evidence in his diary that he's making any deals with anybody. He says, I, I don't want anything to do with this. Whatever they decide, I'm, I'm comfortable with it. Mm. So I think he gets a little bit of a bad, bad rap. Um, one of the things that I, I wanted to give you the Daily Double, though, before we get... <laughs> okay, go ahead. The Daily Double is, the majority ruling in Plessy is famous for three words which do not appear in the decision. Separate but equal. So here's why I think this matters. Separate but equal does not appear in the majority ruling. It does appear in Harlan's dissent. But it doesn't become a phrase until the Supreme Court in Brown makes it a phrase. That's how they describe the ruling and gives the rest of us permission to do this. So I, I, I set up a Google Alerts for myself when I was beginning this project. Plessy, I, I, I receive all things Plessy. And the, and the shorthand that we often see is a shorthand that goes something like this. This is my journalistic brethren. You know, they need to tell you about Plessy for one sentence so that they can go on with the rest of the real point of the article. And the sentence usually is, 
the Supreme Court created a doctrine of separate but equal in Plessy and made it the law of the land. Now, you're all good historians and, and you know, thoughtful people. Why, does those, why should those, that sentence give you trouble? Did the Supreme Court create a doctrine of separate but equal in Plessy? If they did, why aren't the words separate but equal in the, in the decision? Where's the doctrine? I, I don't like it because I feel like the North created the doctrine of separate but equal or, or the idea of separate but equal in the, on the railroads in Massachusetts in the 1840s. Also, I don't like the phrase, made it the law of the land, because does the Supreme Court make laws? No, it interprets laws. It has, has no way to enforce its laws. It has no police force, in case you haven't noticed. Um, so, you know, you could argue with me that I'm sort of parsing words here, but here's why I think it matters. What that phrase does is it lays the blame for separate but equal at the feet of the nine justices on the Supreme Court. And it isn't just their fault. Of course, they do bear responsibility. It's the North's fault. It's the South's fault. It's the shame of both regions of the country. It's the shame of all of us. And I think that we are disclaiming responsibility. This is sort of a phrase that historians like about, you know, the South lost the war and won the narrative because it declared Reconstruction to be a failure. Um, I feel like this is part of that narrative. Uh, It's the Supreme Court's fault, which means that it's not our fault. And it really is our fault. Well, can you say more about the Supreme Court of those days? Uh, as you know, we all kind of have an idea of what the Supreme Court is, but it um, can you contrast it with the Supreme Court of then? I sure can, and I thank my wife for reminding me that I should have said this. <laughs> I was trying to be short, Mary Jo. So we think of the Supreme Court today. How many people think 5-4 immediately when they... Th- here on the radio, the Supreme Court's about to rule on something. That's what I think. Five, four. Who's going to be the swing vote? How's it going to go? Conservative faction, liberal faction. You can wipe all that away in the 19th century, in the, in the late 19th century. These are, uh, first of all, it's a very different kind of court. It's nine white men. You know, nobody's named Kagan or Sotomayor or Ginsburg. They are all from the same class. They all have an a, a extreme affection for property rights. So if you're a lawyer arguing a case before them, you need to come up with a property rights argument. And, and most importantly, um, there are some terms, terms last from October to June, in which the Supreme Court had zero 5-4 decisions. Zero. Rarely 6-3, sometimes 7-2, 90% of their rulings in, in uh, that, that era are unanimous, 90%. Now, it would surprise you to learn that there are more unanimous rulings in today's Supreme Court than you think that there are. But those are about cases that we, all, we aren't all that interested in. <laughs> so this is the kind of Supreme Court that when Turgeot is looking for a legal strategy and he's trying to persuade them that they need to, to, to pay attention to this new case because it's got new conditions, the law has criminalized passenger travel, etc. What, what Turgeot uh, decides to do is he makes a tally. Now, he's not trying to get to 9-0. He's lucky if he can get to 5-4, and his tally doesn't really reflect a reality, but you, know, you can't keep pressing a case unless you think you're going to win. And they had lots of doubts. There's a wonderful correspondence that I read all of uh, between Turgeot and the head of the New Orleans Committee, whose name is Louis Martinet, in which they confess their doubts. They talk about how they're going to do this. But one of his strategies is he wants to argue a property rights argument. 
So he tries out this. Would this work for you if you were a Supreme Court justice? Your race is your reputation. Your reputation is your property. No one has a right to take your property away from you without due process. Okay? So if you can pass for white, then you should be allowed to pass for white. Okay, now the problem with that argument is, let's say the Supreme Court had bought it, then you would have a car with white people and people who could pass for white, and if you had a black skin, you were out of luck, you were in the separate car. That's the way I see it, at least. They never actually say in their brief, oh, by the way, you know, because they had, Terget believed that he should throw a kitchen sink full of arguments at the Supreme Court. Most judges will tell you that's not a very good strategy, but Terget said, I'd rather be faulted for uh, too many arguments than too few because I don't want to miss anything. So his brief is extremely long and has many arguments. One of, their, one of their best arguments is there's no definition for colored in, in Louisiana's laws. So when you say you're going to separate white and colored, who are you talking about? And what about Mr. Plessy? Mr. Plessy, who can pass for white? Does he count? Is he colored? Is he white? North Carolina, Plessy would be white. Michigan, he would be white. That's what they said. Now, they were playing fast and loose with, they called him one-eighth black in, in, their, uh, in, their, in their brief. I've done the genealogy. He's one-quarter black. So in North Carolina, maybe not. But Michigan, for sure. He would be white in Michigan. So you can see how complicated and how, you know, the discussion about race was right out there in the 19th century. They weren't, they, they weren't hiding anything. They weren't afraid to talk about it. Uh, white supremacy was the order of the day, and the white supremacists would tell you exactly what they thought. You mentioned that uh, the vast majority of the cases in uh, the 1890s were at the Supreme Court were you know, nine to one, nine, nine to zero, zero uh, scorecard. But I, I, I find that really hard to believe. I, I'm not doubting it's true, but I'm asking you for an explanation, I guess, because the cases that make it to the Supreme Court are really close cases. Oftentimes, uh, the result of conflicting rulings from circuit courts. So if they made it all the way to the Supreme Court, there had to be some, uh, uh, had to be some, uh, op, you know, a close case. Some conflict. Some conflict, some controversy. Well, right? a lot of the cases were business cases. I mean, Justice Brown, the author of the majority de- de- decision in Plessy, was an expert in admiralty law. Does anybody here even know what admiralty law is? It means the law of the sea. George, put your hand down. You're always, it's the law of, of the sea, and in his case, the law of the river, because he was a lawyer in Detroit on the Detroit River. Um, but so, and they really worried, they still do. I mean, I think you can see this in John Roberts' decision in the Affordable Care Act. They worry about the credibility of the court. They wanted to be unanimous. They get together in a room. Now, this is a Supreme Court that's not meeting in that wonderful building that we all see today. They're meeting in the old Senate chamber. They have no offices. They can work in the chamber or they can go home. That's their choices. And their, their conferences, which are held on a Saturday, usually at somebody's house in, the, in that era, um, usually the Chief Justice's house. He, he lived in this mansion that I spoke at. Uh, in, in the summer, so it was kind of fun to be there. Uh, they, they're looking for unanimity, unanimity. That's what they're after. Because as I said, they have, no, they have no way to enforce what they, excuse me, they have no way to enforce what they, uh, <coughs> excuse me, 
Uh, thank you. I have no way to enforce. Some judges, some justices who would, would otherwise dissent when they see the handwriting on the wall. Would look Certainly, I think that that was possible. You know, remember that in this era, um, I thank my wife for asking me the, the question here. Um, they, they, uh, the, the presidents didn't put people on the court to cement an ideology. That's today's Supreme Court. In that era, they were mostly trying to please and curry favor with the state's senators as a way of getting legislation passed in some other field. And so, yes, there were Democrats, and yes, there were Republicans. But even by, you know, by 1890, Grover Cleveland has had a chance to appoint a couple of Democrats. But the Republicans are the majority on the court. And so there's less conflict than you would think. Um, was there criticism of the proponents bringing this up to have it enshrined in, you know, the Supreme Court? I'm sorry. Um, were there abolitionists and other folks who wanted desegregation upset that the case was brought up and then enshrined in law? So you're asking, you know, lawyers have this phrase, which is don't bring a case if you're going to lose it because exactly. you end up with bad law. And, and, and the problem with that in this era was is that that would just mean you wouldn't bring the case at all because there was no other way to bring a protest to these Jim Crow laws that were starting to get passed. Um, at one point, as I mentioned, Turget writes to Martinet and says, you know, the court has gotten worse because Grover Cleveland has appointed a couple of Democrats. I think we might want to consider withdrawing the case. And Martinet, they, they discussed this a little bit, but basically these two men are fighters, and they don't, they're not going to back down in the end. Um, and I don't think that they thought that it would be worse. I mean, in other words, they didn't see that they were enshrining separate but equal, as we see it today, into the law. They saw it as, this is one more battle we have to fight. And they didn't worry about it in the way that you had outlined it. I mean, they worried about it a little bit. But I, I think in the end, they, they, had, they were caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, we, we can do nothing. Or we can do this. And so one of the things they did was they, they wanted Frederick Douglass's imprimatur. Martinet in 1883 had gone to a convention of colored men. That was the formal title of the convention that was held in Louisville. And Douglass was the, was the creator of this convention. And he gave this rousing speech, which you can read in anthologies. What you'll read, of course, is his prepared remarks. The actual remarks delivered you have to go to the newspapers for uh, and, and Douglas, uh, you know, it was a rousing speech. We must always resist. We would never give in. You must never be silent. And Martinet's all fired up. And this is what he's, he's doing in New Orleans in the 1890s. But then when Martinet gets a letter from the committee saying, we want your imprimatur, he says no. Now, we don't know what he really, you know, we don't know his reasons because his letter doesn't survive. But Martinet's anger, angry letters to Turget survive. And what he says is, you know, Douglas misunderstands us. He thinks we want his money. We don't want his money. I don't understand why he won't give us his approval. So my assessment, my assessment only, is, is two things. One is, is that Douglas looks at these mixed-race, French-speaking Creoles of color in Louisiana and says, not my constituents. And secondly, he says... Losing case. I don't want to be on the side of a losing case. I didn't create this case. I have no loyalty to this case. I think. I don't really know. But it's an interesting fact that he, he, didn't, uh, he, didn't, he didn't pitch in. More questions? More So views? first I wanted to say thank you for writing the book. I look forward to reading it. Um, I do have two questions for you, um, and you can answer these 
how you choose. Uh, the first one is I'm very interested in your takeaway on, you know, how you feel about the state of play today based on what you have just exhausted yourself in research and what you've written. The second part of it is there's a case that's coming before the Supreme Court tomorrow with Byron Allen and Comcast and Charter with regards to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, where he was questioning that there is discrimination against black people related to business because Charter and Comcast will not do business or has not done business with any black media company in their entire existence. And so I feel like this situation has come up again. So I'm curious if you're aware of it and then if you can speak to that as well. Well, on the second one, I would say that I will be an interested observer. I don't think I have any expertise to tell you what I think about that particular case. Um, tell me your first question again. In After writing the book, your takeaway, um, looking at the state of play today, the things that we're dealing with today. Okay, what so here, here's the about. biggest takeaway for me. So I, I've spoken about separate now 30, 40 times. I've talked to a lot of people people of color, people who are white. And what, what I really have come to understand is how serious this divide is between the way that people who are white look at the same set of facts that people of color look at. And uh, people of color tell me, because I didn't experience this, that in their families, I mean, there are people of color here, you know, you are, in their families, this is a continuing national trauma. It's 400 years of oppression. Uh, slavery followed by all the things that we talked about that Mr. McConnell would, would say don't count as part of our racial history. And that, that those stories are live and real for many people of color and their kids. And that's something that they talk about. Whereas white people look at it and they want to talk about progress. And it's not that one side doesn't have a, a something going for it or the other side doesn't have something going for it. It's that the two sides need to talk to each other about how they see the world. And, and that's the biggest takeaway for me, is, is the privilege, in a way, of really getting to uh, hear these stories from people and, and, and having them tell me how they feel about them. Um, do I think that, that you know, progress is being made? Well, of course progress is being made all the time, but it's not being made... Uh, geometrically or exponentially, it's being made slowly and not swiftly, and there are setbacks. And you know, there are new cases, as the Comcast one that you're talking about, come up all the time that make us look at things in a different way. Um, we didn't have those kinds of questions in the 19th century because there weren't very many black businesses, uh, and they didn't get to participate in a lot of parts of American life. Uh, those are only things that result from having opened the doors of opportunity and let people make a stab at, at trying to make a living and make a stab at trying to enter into the same place where whites have always enjoyed privileges. So that's, that's my takeaway. Yeah, we, had a, we had a program uh, just several months ago, a woman whose father was lynched in, in uh, like the 1947, right after World War II, because he was a successful black businessman. And that, that was why. Where he, was that? Um, what state? Do you remember? Uh, yeah, it was in Mississippi. Uh, can you give me a sense, um, why is it that white people don't want to talk about race? And 
What do you think happens emotionally for white people when we... Well, yeah, I cannot talk for a whole class of people. Well, for you as a white, white male. I can talk about myself. Yes, for um, you as a white male. Well, uh, you know, I think that the emotional conversation, if, if somebody is interested and sympathetic to the questions that are being asked, let's start with that. Because if you're not interested and you're not sympathetic, then I'm not sure that I can help define anything. But if you're interested, if you're interested and sympathetic, then I think that um, you have to be willing to be uh, responsible. Maybe you have to feel some shame. Maybe you have to feel some kinship with the people who were uh, responsible for that oppression. And that's difficult for people because they are ask, you're asking them to own something that is unpleasant. So I suspect that there are pe- white people, I mean, there are many people here who can give you other answers, who would, who would say, I find it difficult to have that conversation. Uh, and I, and I, I avoid it because I don't want to confront what it means. So how do we, and just one, one other piece with that, because I used to teach and I've taught diversity and inclusion all over the country. So how do we get to the point where we can begin to find a pathway forward if, if, and I'll say it this way, the construct would be we as African-Americans want to move forward and we still feel that we have like trauma, <laughs> if you will, which would be like uh, PTSD. <laughs> uh, and um, so we're coming from an emotional place, whereas for white people, if there's some sense of guilt comes from the resistance and a fear. So, so I'm only saying, how do we get, we can never have the conversation until we get past or acknowledge some of that, I think. Well, I'm going to say one thing, but before I do, I want you to tell us your experience during your teaching about inclusion all over the country. What have you found about making progress? Um, exactly what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> and, except for... We'll except, add to it. Except for younger people who are more conscious millennials i'm very um i'm very open and i'm 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 hopeful for millennials who really begin to come from a different consciousness about well, it. in one talk i gave in vermont um one teacher of eighth graders said my students don't see color and another eighth grader teacher said well my students see color <laughs> Uh, but I do think that younger people have a much different way of looking at it, in part because they've, not in every place, but in many places, they go to school with people who look different than themselves, and they are having daily conversations that we didn't have. But, um, you know, many of you probably have heard of the book by Dr. Ibram Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which has been on the bestseller list the last few months. And Dr. Kendi um, was at the first, he was the creator of the first annual anti-racist book festival. That was its formal title in April in Washington where I, I was invited to speak. And I listened to Kendi talk about some of these issues. And one of the things he said is, is that he feels like too often people are caught up in trying to prove people's motivations. You know, that was a racist law that you got passed. And he feels that that is not a productive way of looking at it. He wants to look at what he said, and this is not new, but it's, it was new to me in the way he talked about it. He wants to look at outcomes. So if the law has a disproportionate effect on people of color, on African Americans, then that's a law that ought to be examined for that, for why is that happening? 
instead of saying, well, those legislators who passed it were obviously racist for passing it. And I think that that's a healthy and, and, and solid way of trying to confront something that's very difficult. Uh, this is kind of a carry-on, I think, from the last two questions, and I have to read it because it's a little long. Um, I believe that you noted in your opening the importance uh, to people of color of having you, a white journalist, involved in this national discussion of race and the implication of the need to correct the stories of how our country came to be. I believe that only the black people in this audience applauded. Given the overwhelming demographic in this room, can you speak to the importance of your voice as a white man to people in this discussion? And how did you get comfortable entering these discussions? Well, I don't want to thank you for that. I, I, I certainly don't want to exalt my role in this in any way. No, I don't. I, I really, I, I think that there are many other people, whites and black people, storytellers, historians, that come at things differently through music or, or theater or history, history writing, who have tried to have a, make a contribution in this way. So I, don't, I really don't want to go beyond uh, uh, that kind of uh, feeling about it. But, but for me, um, I don't think there's any more important conversation in the country than our conversation about our racial history. And so it feels like, you know, if you're not going to do journalism every day, which I wasn't, and you want to be relevant, then here's a way for me to stay in the relevant conversation. Um, I don't have any illusions about, this is one book out of thousands of books published every year, but one of the reasons why I've made a real effort to go and speak about the book, and, and let me tell you, it's, it's not easy to travel all the time and, you know, get on uh, book festivals and, because it's, I feel like the conversation is really important. And that um, I, I don't think... That I, I got an email once from somebody who asked me to defend myself against what he called cultural appropriation. And I, I, I thought a long time about how to answer that question. And I said, uh, essentially, that I don't think that we should have a country in which only some people write some history. We, we need to embrace the entire history. And for me, that means that there is no such thing as white history or black history. And of course, somebody else who is a, uh, an African-American could take this same story and maybe they would tell it in a very different way. I, I put a lot of emphasis in the book on the, three, the two justices and the lawyer, the three white guys, if you will, who are part of this story. Maybe somebody else would reduce them. them. I see them as important because it's their decision, and I want to know how they arrived at their attitudes in, 1890, in the 1890s. But somebody else could take all the resistors in the story and say, I want to put the emphasis on the resistors. Um, recently, my wife and I went to Montgomery, Alabama to visit the anti-lynching memorial, uh, that the Equal Justice Initiative has just created and the Legacy Museum that accompanies it. And, and one of the things that I felt in seeing that was is that it's also important to go to the Rosa Parks Museum, which is not as well known. It's, it's part of the Troy University campus and the Birmingham right, uh, Civil Rights Museum because those two stories are telling you about how to resist, how to be an activist. Uh, the story at the Rosa Parks Museum is about the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, 
the, the story in the Legacy Museum is about the things that went wrong. And, and it's not that one is right and one is wrong. They're all necessary to understand the story. Uh, so that's my way of seeing how to tell the story and how to be a part of the conversation. And we've run out of time. Um, but I think it's... Uh, you can, it, Steve is going to stay and uh, we'll sign books and so on and so forth. Then you can ask him questions personally. Um, I think that that uh, last question was just great. And uh, your response about the cultural appropriation question, I think is something we really need to think about more because uh, to make this a universal thing throughout throughout the human race, you know, not just race, uh, but, but on uh, all the different decisions that people make about how to live their lives that don't really get in other people's way except for it offends them in some way uh, for emotional reasons. And the cultural appropriation is very interesting because there's cultural appreciation and there's cultural appropriation. And I think that the def definitions aren't clear enough. Americans would hate it if uh, everybody outside of America would not watch our movies. You know, uh, we, there, there would, you know, ruin Hollywood. Uh, from a financial point of view. I think the cultural appropriation issue that really bothers people is to say you pretend to be something you are not in order to get the advantages of whatever it was that's there. Um, and that's, that's what's serious, not to appreciate another culture or, or then you can say only certain people can listen to jazz and all that kind of stuff. It, all kinds of appropriation has taken place um, and mostly it's been based on appreciation, but that stealing somebody else's rights is the thing that really irritates, uh, and, and for good reason, for good reason. So anyway, thank you very much for coming, Stephen, and sharing you. with this discussion. <laughs> and so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 117th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>